Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. Well, we are beginning a brand new series this morning entitled Divine Invitation. An invitation from God himself, kingdom truth from the gospel of Mark. I love the gospel of Mark because it actually is the story of Jesus as told by two men. Two men, both of whom had failed spectacularly at some point in their service to Christ. But two men, both of whom Jesus forgave and restored and redeemed and used in incredible supernatural ways. The two men were the Apostle Peter and a man named John Mark. Now, if you were here with us for our previous series in the book of Acts, uh, the name John Mark might ring a little bit of a bell. If not, let me give you uh, some background. In the, in the book of Acts, we were studying uh, the ministry of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. And on Paul's first missionary journey, he had three missionary journeys. In his first missionary journey, Paul took along a partner named Barnabas, and Barnabas had a cousin named John Mark, who also accompanied them on this first missionary journey. But somewhere along the way, for a reason that we're not told in Scripture, John Mark abandoned the team. He walked away, and this caused a great division. It caused hard feelings, uh, a break between not only the Apostle Paul and John Mark, but Barnabas uh, as well, because uh, when when the Apostle Paul began or was ready to begin his second missionary journey, he wanted to take Barnabas, and Barnabas wanted John Mark to go along again, and Paul said, no way. He abandoned us on the first trip. I'm not, I'm not willing to trust him to go along with us on this missionary journey. And it caused such a division between uh, Paul and Barnabas that Barnabas took John Mark and went in one direction to do church planning and evangelism work, and the Apostle Paul chose a new partner named Silas, and they embarked on Paul's second missionary journey. So that, that's a little bit of background on John Mark. John Mark would later accompany the Apostle Peter on his work for the Lord, and that's where the connection comes between uh, the two men. And Peter, we of course know, uh, was the, the disciple who... Uh, denied Jesus at the very end, and uh, Jesus uh, forgave him after the resurrection, restored him, and uh, Peter went on to have a key role in the early church. So, all that being said, the gospel of Mark is the story of the apostle Peter's experience with Jesus as written, as told by John Mark. It's the story of Peter's time on earth with Jesus. Those three years that he walked with Jesus along with the other disciples on Jesus' earthly ministry. A story and really a collection of stories that Peter told over and over and over again in testimonies and sermons. And John Mark heard those time and time again. We believe that he wrote his account somewhere around A.D. 55 and 65, somewhere in that decade, 
and uh, that he wrote it from Rome where Peter was imprisoned before his own execution. Now, there are two theories about how he wrote uh, the account. One theory is that he listened to all those sermons as he accompanied the apostle Peter, and he heard them and he kept them in his memory. Maybe he made some notes. And that after Peter was executed, and tradition says that he was crucified upside down, upside down by his own request that he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way Jesus did, that after his death, John Mark then sat down and put into writing that which he had heard Peter say. But the second theory about how it came about, and I kind of like this one because at least to me it it makes a a more moving story, uh, was that right at the end of his life, while he was there in a Roman dungeon, that John Mark went and sat down with Peter and said, Peter, you know that your time here on earth is coming to a close. Your experience with Jesus that I've been listening to for these years, this needs to be preserved for the, for the church. And, and he had no idea that it, it would continue for more than 20 centuries. And, and so uh, that he sat down with him and said, Peter, just tell me, just start talking. Let, let me make notes. And, and if that was the case, then he, he in essence, wrote a journal of Peter's experience with Jesus, and it became what we know as the Gospel of Mark. And there are several prominent themes in the Gospel of Mark, and and this series is not a verse-by-verse study of the entirety of the entire Gospel account. We're not going to take, that would take months and months to do that. Uh, But we're going to choose one of the themes that is prominent in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to seek to unpack it from his words in the Gospel account. And uh, the theme is the kingdom of God. And so to kind of get the setting, and a little bit later we'll start at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. But to set the the scene for how this theme emerges from the entire account, uh, it takes us to chapter 12. So if you have a, a copy of the Bible, open it to Mark chapter 12. If you didn't bring your Bible today, not to worry. Uh, all of the verses will be provided on the screen from the New Living Translation from which I teach. So Mark chapter 12, verse 13, this sets the scene. Follow this. Later, the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Now that's the setting. The enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, the religious leaders whose religious scam was about to be exposed and ruined by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they and some of the the henchmen of Herod, the, the the Roman ruler, uh, they were in cahoots with one another to try to find a way to trap Jesus, to catch him into saying something that was illegal by Roman law, and to have him uh, incarcerated and eventually executed. So that, that was what they set out to do. And so they began to ask him questions, trick questions, that they thought there's no way he can answer these without getting himself 
in trouble with the Roman government. Uh, they asked him, and you may be familiar with this story uh, from Scripture, they, they asked him, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The Pharisees asked. And of course, the Pharisees were Jews, and the Jews hated Rome because Rome was ruling over them. They were oppressing them. And it was a, a godless government. And, and so they asked him, okay, uh, you believe in Jehovah God. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar, who is this godless uh, ruler? And you may remember Jesus said, show me a coin. And whose picture is on the coin? Caesar. Then render unto Caesar what Caesar's, render unto God what is God. And they didn't know how to respond to Jesus' answer. And, and then they posed a hypothetical question to him. That it was Jewish tradition that if a man died and left his wife a widow, that the man's brother was to marry her and take care of her to make sure she was provided for. And they said, okay, Jesus, what if this man dies and uh, his brother marries the widow and then that brother dies and the next brother and went on down the line, seven brothers. What if all seven brothers marry her and die and then she dies? Who's wife is she in heaven? And Jesus basically says, you guys have no clue. Well, he didn't say it exactly like that, but uh, he basically said, that's not how it works. That we will not have marriage in heaven in the same way that we have it here on earth. But then in the midst of all this kind of evil treachery and trick questions, there's a man who actually has an honest question and who asks it respectfully of Jesus. And so go with me, still in Mark 12 right now, go all the way down to verse 28 with me. It says, one of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only God, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now, though Mark is writing to Romans, to Gentiles, this Jewish command from the Old Testament Scripture was well known even to them. It comes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. But then Jesus did something that no one had ever done before. He took another command from the Old Testament, this one from Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. And the language, follow this, the language in the original text of the New Testament, which was Koine Greek, the language indicates that Jesus pairs these two commands in a way that unifies them and puts them equal to one another. So in other words, it's not two separate disjointed commands, but they really are one command. And so he continues, verse 31, the second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth by saying there is only one God and no other. <laughs> I have to find a little humor in this because he's saying, Oh, good job, Jesus. You got the answer right. 
Of course he did. He's Jesus. I, I, I mean, but yet this man doesn't yet realize that he is talking to the living God. He is talking to God incarnate in human flesh. He is talking to the one who along with the Father was co-creator, not only of everything in the world on which he lives, but in all of the planets, of all of the solar systems that he doesn't even know or understand yet, that he is talking to God right before his eyes. And he goes on to say to Jesus, and I know it is important to love him with all my heart, and all my understanding and all my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Now, that for a Pharisee or a Sadducee to say that, they were the religious you know, experts, for them to say that indicates this man had understanding that was not typical of those religious leaders. And Jesus, who could see right into his heart, understood that he was not evil like these other religious leaders that were trying to trick him and entrap him. That this man actually cared about what was right and what was true. That this man was not satisfied with mere religion. But that this man wanted to know God. And so the text continues, verse 34. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You are not far from the kingdom of God. I really believe that Jesus was touching on something that we talk a lot about here these days at Magnolia's First, and that is that everybody, whether they realize it or not, everybody is on a faith journey. They're on a faith journey, and we kind of picture it as a road because you, you take journeys on, on roads, and, and they're on a faith journey. Every one of you are on a faith journey, and you are somewhere between unbelief way over here or fully devoted Christ follower way over here, and there's a journey in between, and there's really only three areas of that journey's road. The first is where this man was. You can be on a journey to faith. You haven't yet put your faith in Jesus. This man had not yet done that. And, and if you're on a journey to faith, unless you're stuck over here in unbelief, unwilling to move, but if you're on a journey to faith, then you're learning. Maybe that's why you're here today or watching online. You're learning, you're asking questions, you're investigating, you're considering, you're wondering, you're thinking about this whole issue of faith in Jesus and, and salvation and the Bible and the church and, and all that. You're trying to sort it all out in this journey to faith. And that's where this man was. 
But then at some point, if you continue to move on that journey to faith, you come to the point where the Lord gives you understanding and he begins to tug on your heart to pull you where you come to a defining moment in that journey where you have to decide are you or are you not going to step across the line of faith? In other words, there, there comes a point where you have to decide, are you going to put your faith in Jesus or not? If you ever ask somebody if they're a Christian, they say, oh, yeah, I've always been a Christian. They don't understand what the Bible teaches about faith. Nobody is always a Christian. We are born sinners, we are born sinners who need to be saved, who need to be rescued from the consequences and penalty of sin. And so there comes a point where if you're going to move from a journey to faith to a, to a journey of a Christ follower, then you have to step across the line of faith. And what does that mean? How do you do that? Well, here's what the Bible says. The first and most important thing is you must believe. Most, most familiar verse in all the Bible. I bet you know it even if you really didn't grow in church. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But you see, in the original language of the New Testament, the word believe here is not just a mere intellectual agreement. No, it's, it's much more than that. It means that you believe something so deeply and so powerfully that you're willing to give your life to that. You're willing to, to commit yourself to that. You're, you're willing to invest who you are and everything that you have for that which you believe. That's, that's what believe means. And then when you believe, there is a, a, another step that you take, and that is to declare your faith. And the first most important way you do that is through believer's baptism. That's what we saw over there just a few minutes ago. Believer's baptism. Now, you are not saved, you don't become a believer, you don't become a Christian, you don't become a Christ follower by being baptized. You are baptized because that's already happened. You step across the line of faith. You are saved by your faith. But then you declare that. You say to your family, and by the way, it's great to see you guys here. How awesome it is that you were, were here today to witness that, that beautiful declaration of his faith in Christ. You say to the church, you say to the world, I'm not ashamed, I don't care who knows, I am a Christ follower. And baptism declares that. And so when you step across the line of faith by believing, by putting your faith in Christ, you declare that through believer's baptism. And then you have moved from a journey to faith where this man was to a journey of faith because then you are a person of faith and you begin a journey of learning what living out your faith is all about. And that journey will never end until your earthly death or if Jesus returns before you die. That continues every day and we do not walk it perfectly. We'll take three steps forward, two steps back. We'll fall off into the ditch every now and then because we're still sinful human beings. But that faith keeps us 
following that road of faith, learning what it means to live faithfully for Jesus. It's a journey of faith. So I I say all that to say, where are you? Are you on a journey to faith? Are you ready today to step across the line of faith and declare it through believer's baptism? Are you already on a journey of faith? Many of you who are here in the worship center or watching online, you've been on a journey of faith for many years. You understand what I'm talking about. And when you become a Christ follower, when you embark on that journey of faith, you become a part of a kingdom that is different than the kingdom of this world. And the whole theme of the the series is this, and this is today's sermon in one sentence, the kingdom of God has come and you are invited to be a part of it to be a part of it. So let's see how that unfolded in John's gospel. Let's go all the way back, if you would, to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And let's work our way through a little bit of John's gospel in the rest of the message. Mark 1, 1. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Now at this point, nobody yet knew who Jesus was. And John is drawing great crowds, and he's preaching a message not about himself, but he's saying somebody's coming. He is almost here. Look at verse 7 and 8. John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, as we study the Scripture, whether it's together collectively in a service or Sunday school class or whatever it might be, or individually as we read the Scripture, we read the Scripture, we study the Scripture for different inner motivations. Uh, For instance, we often read the Bible for inspiration. Inspiration. We live in a, we live in an ugly world. We we need inspiration. Sometimes, we read the Bible for hope. We live in a seemingly hopeless, evil world, and we need hope. And we read the Bible for hope, or we read the Bible for peace, in a world that's filled with chaos and turmoil, and there seems to to be no peace. We read the Bible to try to find peace, or we read the Bible for security in the most insecure world ever in our day. We need security. And so we we often read the Bible for inspiration. It will lift our spirits and inspire us. Or sometimes we read the Bible for instruction. Instruction. How to be a, a better version of me. 
How can I be, if you're already a Christ follower, how can I be a better Christ follower? How can I be a more faithful Christ follower? How can I understand what's right and what's wrong in this confusing world? How can I know what's true and what's not true? How, how can I know how to live better? We, we read the Bible for instruction. In other words, whether we're reading it for inspiration or we're reading it for instruction, basically, we're reading it for us, aren't we? We're reading it for us. And that's not bad. That's not wrong. In fact, it's right. We need to read the Bible for us. But in this series, I want us to step back a little bit and get the bigger view. In our narcissistic society, we tend to want to make everything all about us, as if the world revolves around us. And though our world seems to revolve around us, I want us to get the, the bigger view of what Scripture, specifically the New Testament, is saying. I want to challenge us to see the big picture, to understand that it's not just about what God is doing in us, but that God is at work all around us, all around us. Or let me say it this way. You and I are just tiny pieces of a bigger broader, grander, eternal narrative. And that narrative is the kingdom of God. See how Jesus spoke of it. Go to verse 14 of Mark 1. Later on, after John was arrested, meaning John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. Here's what he preached. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. He was saying to the people in that first century world, listen, you think this is about the kingdom of this world. You think this is about Rome. Rome was the, the world power uh, of that time. Or the Jews thought that the kingdom of God was about conquering Rome and moving them out of the way and installing Israel as the great world power. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not that at all. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom of governmental rule. It is a kingdom of transformed hearts and lives. And somehow even we as Christians in America have gotten the idea that our calling, our purpose is to turn our nation back into a quote-unquote God-fearing nation as if it really ever were one. And though there may have been more influence of godly things on our nation than any other, the reality is the kingdom of God is not about the kingdom of the United States or any other nation of the world in this era or any other. The kingdom of God is not about a kingdom of this world of governmental rule. The kingdom of God is about transformed hearts and lives and eternities. And in the kingdom of God, loving God and loving other people is everything. It's everything. That's what, that's what Jesus was saying. 
It's everything. Loving God with all your heart and loving other people as much as you love yourself. This kingdom, Jesus was saying, is different than any other kingdom anywhere at any time in human history. This kingdom will turn darkness to light. This kingdom will change evil into good. This kingdom will transform hate. There's so much hate today. It will transform hate into love. This kingdom will conquer death and give by grace through faith the gift of eternal life. And so Peter teaches and Mark records it about the kingdom of God. Let me show you a couple of snapshots of Jesus' teaching quickly. Mark chapter 10. Love this story. Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 13. One day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch them and bless them. Just picture this scene. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. Do you have an appointment? I don't know if they asked that or not, but when Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Jesus is saying, listen, money and power won't get you into this kingdom. You've got to be like a child. Verse 15, I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And that had to confuse them. They they had to shake their head and go, what? You get into the kingdom of God by being childlike? We've always been taught you behave your way into the kingdom of God. You become good enough, you become moral enough, you become religious enough so that at the end God will say, wow, I'm really impressed with you. Come on into heaven. Or that you get into the kingdom of God by power, that you you somehow are able to buy your way in or power your way in. Let me show you another scene quickly. Mark 10, verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, picture this now, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is the question. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. That's just kind of a side where Jesus is saying, listen, if you just think I'm a good man, a good man can't answer that question. A good man doesn't have the wisdom, the understanding, or the authority to tell you how to inherit eternal life. Only God can do that. But then he goes on to respond, verse 19. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. And right about this time, he's saying to himself, I thought so. I thought so. As I look around, nobody has done that as well as me. 
Nobody's as good or moral or religious as I am. I knew it. I'm good with God. And he starts to get up and walk away. And then Jesus says one more thing, verse 21. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Here's what he said. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. And he went away sad, for he had many possessions. He was rich. You know, going back to the image of the child, a child doesn't have any sense of money and what something costs or or you know, budgeting or, or, or wealth or poverty. A, a child, they just depend on their daddy or their mommy to provide whatever they need. If they're childlike, money doesn't matter. But to this man, it mattered more than anything. In fact, his money mattered so much, he was willing to give up heaven to keep it. And it broke Jesus' heart. Look at verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. You see, Jewish culture taught, if you're rich, it shows God's favor is on you. By the way, that's still taught today. God's favor is on those who are wealthy. Jesus is saying, no, no, the kingdom of God is not about being wealthy. And when he said that, they blew the disciples away because that's what they'd always been taught. That's what they believed. That wealth and God's favor were linked to each other. So verse 24 says, this amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, It's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Whether Jesus is using hyperbole here or he's talking about a little opening in the city wall that they called the eye of a needle that was big enough for a person to get through but not a camel, the the message is clear. It's a difficult, difficult thing for a person who is consumed with their wealth to get into the kingdom of God. Verse 26, the disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it's impossible. If you try to make it on your own, if you try to earn your way, impossible. But not with God. Everything is possible with God. Then Peter began to speak up. Peter always opened his mouth before his mind was in gear. He, he, he spoke up and he said, we've given up everything to follow you, he said. And Peter was thinking back to that day that he'd walked away from his boat, his fishing boat with which he made a living. He had dropped his nets. He had turned his back on fishing and he had followed Jesus. He said, we emptied our hands. We've given everything. Is that what you're asking? Jesus said, verse 29, yes, 
And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, or property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God takes what's valuable and important and turns it upside down, verse 20, verse 31. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. So I would say to you what Jesus said to to the men that day both the religious teacher and the one who asked about eternal life. Drop whatever it is that you think is important and follow Jesus. And so I would ask of you today, are you ready to take the next step in your faith journey? In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and when I pray, some of our deacons and their wives are going to be here at the front We're going to have a time of prayer. If you would like to pray with them as we close our service, they're here to pray with you about anything on your heart. If you have need of God's healing, the Scripture teaches us to anoint the sick and pray for God to heal them. My wife and I will be here at the front and willing to do that. But this is more important even than those things. If you're here today and you're ready to take the next step in your faith journey, whatever that step would be, if you just come to one of these deacons and their wives and say this, I need to take the next step, then they will tell you how you can do that and will support you if you're ready to step across the line of faith or move deeper into your walk, your journey of faith. So pray with me. And our prayer partners will make their way to the front. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would ask the important question that that man asked of Jesus that day. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And for those who are here today or watching online, for those who are on a journey to faith, I pray that they would consider how much Jesus loves them, how he died for their sins so that they might be forgiven and become by faith a child of God. And I pray that there might be those today willing to consider stepping across the line of faith and beginning a journey of faith. I pray for the needs that are represented here in the worship center and those who are watching online. And I pray that you might be at work in each of our lives. Lord, we commit these few brief moments of prayer to you today in the powerful name of Jesus.